Before we get to our scripture, I want to uh, just give a very, very beginning theology lesson. It'll help us understand. Actually, you guys probably already, many of you already know this, but you, you learn this in like day one, the first class of Theology 101 in seminary, and that, that there's, there's two types of, um, two general categories in which God reveals himself to us. The first category is called special revelation, and it's specific, and, it, and we, we, get, we call it his word, we call it the Bible, and uh, God specifically reveals himself through his word. We don't have to guess what it says. We don't have to, I mean, there's a little bit of uh, discussion on interpretation, and uh, we have to, to uh, take into consult, account cultural, uh, historical things. But generally, we have it, we can look at it, we can look it up, we can study it. It's uh, very specific, special revelation. There's another category called general revelation. And uh, it's, a, it's a little more nebulous, a little more uh, intangible, and it's it's how God reveals himself through all of creation. How God reveals himself when you walk out the door and see the, the sun and the, the uh, blue sky and feel the warmth. How God reveals himself in, in everything from um, a difficult situation at work to a... Uh, um, well, we'll get into it. But the thing I wanted to uh, point out before we get to our reading is that... Um, what we want to do is take this special revelation, this specific revelation, and help us, almost as if uh, they're sunglasses, help us taint our vision so that when we go out into the world, we see the world God's way. And that's the purpose of this, this scripture this morning. It gets us, it clues us in on how to view general revelation, how to view the world around us on a day-in, day-out, everyday basis. So having said that, that was pretty dangerous. I was walking on that thin ledge. Having said that, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. Three verses, okay? Highly, highly theological verses, but very, very simple verses. Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image. Now, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, by Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help in applying his, his word to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little nugget of faith, this key to unlocking our worldview. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the way you see. Lord, help us to allow your creation to come alive to us. We ask for your Holy Spirit's work. We depend on your Holy Spirit's work in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if there's any way we can get some of that ringing out. It, I don't know if you can hear it, but it's... 
in, in talking about this passage, and we're going to get to the, we're going to specifically address these verses like halfway through the sermon, so hang on there. It's going to be like the longest introduction ever, but hopefully through the introduction, you'll, um, we'll, we can just hit these verses and they'll, they'll pop right out to you. But I'm, I'm going to start sort of in the opposite. When I grew up in, in the, uh, the, uh, the church where I grew up, there was sort of this polarization of life. There was, and, and if I had masking tape, I would, uh, I would tape it right down here. And uh, life could be put into two categories. There was the uh, secular category. Sorry, people for, on this side. But there was the secular category. Things like, uh, well, let me define the other category first, and then we can see what's the, the, the secular category. There's, there was the sacred category on, on this level. And the sacred category was everything good, everything God. Um, and it's it Bible studies, it's prayer times, it's grace around the table, it's Sunday mornings, it's youth group, it's anything connected with church, anything connected with the Bible. That was the sacred. And then you cross the uh, masking tape line and you have the secular. You had work, you had sports, you had television, you had food. Um, and there was this really dichotomy between, between life. And the, the urging that I had growing up was, you want to stay in the sacred. You want to stay in the sacred and try to minimize the damage that the secular does. And uh, it took me a little while to realize that is a wrong view. That is bad theology. But somehow, it, it's an easy theology to pick up. And I remember hearing many sermons as a kid warning us against idolatry. It would be a good Old Testament passage where the Israelites give in to idolatry and, and uh, God uh, lowers the boom on them. And uh, it, rightfully so. Idolatry is, is, is terrible. It's taking um, the creation and worshiping it instead of the creator. But I, the, the messages would be delivered in such a way at, that would scare a, a, you know, a, a young 13, 14-year-old boy, you know, what is your idol? What do you make your idol? And then um, the, uh, the pastor would list things like work or money or sports. Now, for me, I loved um, I, anything that I could move my body, I would love, love to do. So whether it was kickball or baseball or football or wiffle ball, uh, we were always out doing it until we heard our mom say, dinner time, you know. And uh, it, it was a hard thing for me to understand, not to make these things an idol and am I making these things an idol and I, I remember you know there's such a, a, a really tangible joy when you have that uh, we, we, ha- we lived in a, a, a residential area that was slowly being built and houses were being built and there was always a, a couple vacant lots down at the end and we would play all kinds of games down in the, these vacant lots and they, they, they were just exhilarating actually I can still feel the feeling you know when it's wiffle ball and it's the ninth inning and the bases are loaded and, and there's two outs and your team's down and you're up at bat and you're either going to whiff and be the dog of the neighborhood or you're going to crack one out of reach of the outfielder, and you're going to be the hero. And I remember being both at times, you know, uh, one day, or, or, or catching that pass, the last play of the game. And it's, there's an exhilaration, there's a tangible joy. Then I would go into church and hear this warnings about not making sports my idol. Is it my idol? Do I love those games more than I love God? Well, the problem is, for a 13-year-old, God is intangible. He's invisible. 
He's not going to throw me a football pass. I can read about him. I can have people teach me about him. But I couldn't really picture him. And depending on your particular church experience, God may have seemed more like someone to be afraid of than someone to love more than wiffle ball or love more than work or love more than television or whatever your potential idol was. Now, let me digress a little bit. Having said that, I, I do have some, uh, some relatives in my extended family that definitely over-obsess about things, over-obsess about sports. And I want to share one of my uncles just for the sake of this illustration, Uncle Mike. Uh, depending on the season, um, there, there are times when I begin to resemble Uncle Mike and I have to scroll back from my football watching or my baseball following. And, uh, but Uncle Mike, if you looked like Uncle Mike, here's some telltale signs of what your life was like. When the baseball season or football season or whatever sports season you're, you're fond of hits, you begin to eat, sleep, and drink in all the news you can about that sport. You begin to watch your favorite team. You become an expert on your favorite team. But it can't just be your favorite team. You have to know the opposition, who your team is playing. And soon you're an expert on just about everything. And a commentator can make a mistake, and you'll catch him because you're, you're so into that sport. And uh, you watch every game. You memorize every stat. You're reading all the newspaper articles. But it doesn't stop there. Soon after opening game... Um, you are, you're buying T-shirts and hats and bumper stickers and no parking except for Red Sox fan-only signs. You're getting updates of your favorite team on your cell phone, and they're on your Internet window at uh, home and at work. It's not the case with me. I don't have the Red Sox on my, my desktop at work or at home. Um, and the icing on the cake comes when you start remodeling your basement to be a full-scale, officially licensed sports bar furnished with lazy boys, leather couches, and the ubiquitous dogs playing poker painting on the wall. Now, at this point, you might be asking, well, non-sports fans and spouses of sports fans, you're saying right on, amen, idolatry. But for sports fans, you might be asking, come on, is this really such a bad thing? Everybody has a passion. Everybody has a hobby, right? Well, the only way... To answer that question, if sports has become your idol, is maybe to interview your, your spouse or your children or your, your girlfriend if you're not married or your boyfriend if you're not mar married and ask them if they feel valued, if they feel appreciated, if they feel loved by you. Tell them you're willing to do any one thing within reason and ask them what would that be and if, if it's to spend time with me, to pay attention to me. Well, you might want to consider your love for the Bears or the Packers in light of your family or your future family. My point in all this is not to make us feel bad about loving sports or loving television or loving uh, fishing or loving golfing. I, I, I want to do the opposite. And this is going to take us into our scripture passage. I want to say that unless you're hurting the loved ones or really worshiping creation or, or the created thing, that your obsession with sports or golf or fishing, and maybe obsession is the wrong word, your love of these things, your love of food, your love of art, your love of music, can actually help you find and love God and express your love for God all the more. It may help you love God in the life that God has given you all the more. See, God has often been misrepresented, painted as a cosmic judge or divine policeman just waiting for us to screw up. In fact, there's an old um, Farside slide, which um, if I 
turn my thing on here. I'll show it to you. I don't know if you could see this, but it says God at his computer, and uh, he has his finger over the smite button. And unfortunately, he's about to drop the piano on that guy walking by. Unfortunately, a lot of folks in the church and outside the church have this, this view of God. Few people think of God as the giver of sunsets, of the create, as the creator of beauty, as the person who thought up intelligence and all the other good things in life. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. It wasn't until my college days that I realized this, that everything good, everything good, no matter how secular it may seem, has God's fingerprints all over it. Think of the times that you've been awed by creation. Maybe it was a walk on an empty beach or a breathtaking view from the top of a mountain or even an incredible sunset or starry night. We were down at uh, Turkey Run Campground uh, with the cadets um, a few weekends ago and uh, there wasn't a lot of city around there. And we had a little campfire, but if you looked up, the stars seemed so close, so tangible. And they immediately give you this sense of like profound smallness. Whatever the scenario, whether it's a sunset or uh, a mountaintop experience or watching someone hit a home run out of the ballpark, Whatever the scenario, something stirs in us, a sense of peace, a sense of wonder, a sense of something bigger. That something is the creator, speaking through the goodness of his creation. It doesn't just happen in nature. It happens all over life, everywhere. Have you ever been um, in one mood, kind of a bad mood or a cranky mood or maybe a sad and depressed mood, and then you hear a song and your mood changes? That song gave you a sense of peace or maybe pumped you up and focused you, made you feel alive, made you feel passionate, made you feel like anything was possible. Or maybe it was a movie that grabbed your heart. And if you were to scroll back, you would say, this is just a fictional, these are, these are actors, these are characters, it's, a, it's, it's not a true story. But in there, 30 minutes into the movie, your heart is grabbed and you are brought to tears. Or maybe... It's like Braveheart. And you feel all of a sudden that you, anything, is, anything is possible, that you can accomplish anything, Lord willing. You can rise above your own situation and feel what life feels like when you are the hero through that film. These experiences, songs, movies, art, these are all pointers to a greater peace, a greater satisfaction, a greater hero. I even think that we can experience it in something as regular, as mundane as a meal. I won't put uh, any people on the spot, but I had a fabulous steak last night from one of you guys. And uh, the first bite is always my favorite when it's a good steak. And this was a good steak. And uh, how is something so mundane as eating a bite of red meat a pointer to God. Well, if you stop and say, let me ask you, how many taste buds does the average person have? Anybody know? Anybody know? Come on. This is like good trivia. 
10,000. The average person has about 10,000 taste buds, okay? How about a dog? Does anybody know what the average taste bud of a dog is? 1,700. And that's why they eat dirt and stones and Legos. <laughs> but the creator of the universe gave us 10,000, 8,300 more taste buds than a dog. Why? So that even mundane, habitual, routine tasks point us to the awesomeness of creation, point us to uh, tilt our head and say, wow, that was great, praise God. Everywhere in art, music, film, nature, even in sports, there are guideposts that point us to God. These guideposts help us to see beyond our circumstances and glimpse a bit of God's extraordinary reality in the midst of of our ordinary lives. A famous theologian, I, I'm sure most of you have, have heard of him in, in, in the CRC context, Abraham Kuyper. I, I said this quote earlier. It's one of his most famous quotes. It's, so, it, it's such a good summary of our scripture passage. Abraham Kuyper said this, in the total expanse of human life, there's not a single square inch of which Jesus Christ does not declare, that is mine. That is good theology. Kuiper peels back the, ma the, the masking tape, and there's no longer a secular sacred divide. There's not a square inch in total human existence where Christ doesn't say, that's mine. If he was alive today and I can interview him, I think he would also say, taking a bite of steak, if he was a meat eater, or... Watching Paul Konerko hit a home run out of the cell park is also a places where Christ says, mine. Once you realize this, once you realize there's no divide between secular and sacred, everything in life becomes charged with new meaning. Seeing a baby smile or a walk, seeing a baby walk for the first time, a great conversation with friends, Starlin Castro knocking one out of the park. All these things arouse in us something greater than our normal run-of-the-mill emotions, something that hasn't come out in us in a while. That's why people shout to their, till they're hoarse at concerts. It's why people cry while watching a movie. It's why 40,000 or 60,000 or 100,000 fans go crazy when someone hits a home run, or catches a touchdown pass, or scores a goal. Something stronger, something more courageous, something more passionate, more generous, more heroic is stirred within us, pointing us to a bigger something, a better something. In essence, pointing us to the life we have always wanted, the life God designed us to have, and ultimately pointing us to God himself, the author and sustainer of all things. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this, but how does Jesus fit in all this? Well, let's look, look back at our passage. The Bible sheds great light on this. I want to read that again. Colossians 1, 15 and 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, okay? Jesus was right there. By him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Basically, Paul, Paul is saying, hey, Jesus is Lord of the unseen world and the, the Lord of the, the seen world. He's the creator of the unseen and the seen. All things were created by him and for him. All things were created by him and for him. Let me say that again. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a pretty heavy theological principle, but the big idea is very simple. What the Bible is saying that it was Jesus was right there from the start of existence and his hand, had his hand in creating and sustaining all of existence. Whenever we think of creation, we always think of God the Father. We, we don't usually think of Jesus the Son, but he was right there. It's funny, when we think of Jesus, we usually think of Christmas, the Incarnation, or Easter his death and resurrection, we don't often think of, what did Jesus do before that first Christmas? He was right there, creating with God. That's great, you might be thinking. But how can a baseball game, or a baby's smile, or a walk on the beach be pointers to Jesus? Well, our Bible reading starts off by telling us that Jesus is at the source of everything. He was the master designer that mulled over the blueprints of creation, giving everything special meaning and purpose. I want to take this one, um, and I wish I was a scientist. I, I think it, maybe I could call Jen Coutier up here, and she could tell me a little bit more because she works with proteins. But um, I heard this at, a, at a, uh, a talk from a passion conference. It's about, uh, there's a, a speaker that I really like. His name is Louis Giglio, and he was telling um, he tells a story about how after um, a talk on a passage very similar to ours, a scientist came up to him and said, when you go home tonight, Google laminin. And Louis was talking about how Christ is in all and holds all things together. And so he goes home and he Googles laminin. Whoops, that's not laminin. <laughs> hold, hold on. We'll get to that cute little kid. That's laminin. Wow, isn't that amazing? Well, if you look on the right side, that's the, uh, that's the, the diagram, the, the uh, theoretical structure of laminin. And you can see that it's in the shape of a cross. Um, and then on the, on the left side is the actual, it's an actual uh, scan of real laminin in your body. Now, laminin is human glue, pretty much. It's, it's, a, it's a binding protein, so it holds your skin together. It holds your organs together. And now... If you're a scientist, maybe you don't make this leap, but if you're a Christian that um, knows that Christ has created all things and holds all things together, when you see laminin, the glue of the human body that holds skin and tissue and organs together, is in the shape of the cross, you have to scratch your head and say, coincidence? God could have used a a shape of a star. He could have used an X. He could have used a... a, uh, a circle. He could use a square, a rectangle, an amoeba shape. But the thing that holds our bodies together at a molecular level is in the shape of a cross. Now, I can't prove the existence of God just because human glue at the molecular level resembles the chloros, but I can say that even at the molecular level, there are hints of Christ. There are pointers of Christ. 
It's a, is it a credible coincidence or not that the material that holds the body together is in the form of a cross, the symbol of Christ's love and sacrifice that holds creation together? Everything got its start in Jesus and finds its purpose in Jesus. I want to take a more ordinary example, and this is where this baby comes in. That's one of my children. You can, I'll let you guess uh, which one. Uh, and actually, I'll give it away because I have to talk about it. This is actually Sam when uh, he was nine weeks old. And uh, I had an experience. I, I, we had this little baby blanket there, that blue baby bank blanket you could see. And uh, I have pictures with all three of my kids laying on the same blanket. And they all have very similar expressions. At nine weeks, babies are just really learning to smile. And uh, they have no teeth. And, you know, so their eyes light up when they smile. And it, it's, a, it's a really decent picture. And I remember very specifically, it was almost like a holy moment for me when uh, on that, on a, it might have been a, a different uh, blanket, but on a similar blanket, um, standing, uh, kneeling over Phoebe. Laura and I were kneeling over Phoebe, just, you know, goo goo gaga, and, and Phoebe's smile is, is, uh, is, is wide, and her eyes are bright. And I remember looking down and thinking, man, it's almost as if God is using this little girl to love us. And I remember thinking, Man, I, I wish I could express. It was a, a, a pause, pause the clock moment when those words came out of my mouth. It's almost if God is loving us through this little baby. And I felt like God saying, I am. Everything, a baby smile, human glue at the molecular level, baseball park, walk in Eldridge Park, all of them have Christ's fingerprints, and all of them we can see and appreciate God. Once you start to see this, once you become aware that all creation is speaking out to you about Christ, the secular no longer is secular. The secular is sacred. You begin to get a much deeper, much more fuller experience of life the more you can see God in everything, even the mundane. For example, a few months ago, I was uh, reading through the Harry Potter series. Uh, my son was reading it at Timothy last year, and he was already on book five, and I'm like, Harry Potter, you know, there's a little bit of controversy. Should you be reading it? Should you not be reading it? Well, he's already on book five. I better dive in. And so I, I, I read like a fiend. It's like 4,000 pages long, seven books. The books are like... And, uh, but the cool thing about it is when um, we started reading together, I was able to say, hey, she pulled this from the Bible. Hey, I don't know if she intended this, but this is the Christ story. And in fact, uh, you know, that last book that came out that everybody was in anticipating, and I think I, I mentioned this in a sermon once, that uh, on the very first day, it's, it sold 15 million copies. And, and the very first day, book seven came out. Book seven was basically, um, the climax of that whole story was the gospel in a nutshell. In, in, in this, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you'll appreciate this. In this, Harry Potter decides to sacrifice his life for his friends and for the world. And he gives himself over to the evil one, Lord Voldemort, and 
Lord Voldemort kills him. But it doesn't just stop there. If he would have just died, well, evil would have got the last say. But through, um, and this is really hard to explain if you hadn't read the books, Harry's given the choice. And he decides to come back, and he resurrects. And he's able to defeat evil once and for all. Where did she get that? I don't know if she's a Christian or not. Where did she get that? Well, Jesus sacrifices himself for the human race. But if he remains in the grave, evil gets the last word. But on the third day, he rises again. And evil forever loses the war. And sin and death is vanquished. Everything, literature, ballparks, babies, sunsets, they're pointers to Christ if you have the awareness of it. I have two steps for us in application. This is what, what I would like to do, like us to do with these three verses. First, prayerfully become aware. Start your day off by saying, God, I've read your scripture. Now help me to see you in general revelation. Help me to see you in the world around me. And when you prayerfully become aware, you'll start seeing God in different places. And when you start seeing God in different places, it's exciting. And so when you cry during a movie, when the movie's over, ask yourself, why did I cry? What emotions did it evoke? And then follow the trail to God. Or when you're at the ballpark and you find yourself jumping out of your seat with the rest of the crowd, when you go home or the drive home, ask yourself, why did I jump out of my seat and follow the trail to God? The second thing I want you to do, first become aware. Second thing is talk about what you experienced. Talk about it. Make the connection with other people. Make the connection with your son or with your father or with your sister or with your neighbor or with your coworker. This is acceptable evangelism for those skeptical about the church. Because you're talking not about truth, but you're talking about meaning. And people will engage you on meaning. And so you, when you talk about the smallness you felt when you were up on that mountain and saw all those stars, and then you talk about how um, I, I'm so happy that, that, uh, that Scripture helps me put words to my feelings when the psalmist says, God, breathe the stars out. Become aware and then talk about your experiences. Talk about it. You can talk about it on both the positive side and the negative side. I was sharing with someone about the, the main theme of this, this sermon, and, and someone said, oh yeah, how about pornography? Is, is Christ in, on every square inch? Is he in pornography? I'm like, well, trace it back. If we trace it back, pornography is an evil degeneration of sex, which God created for, for pleasure and for bonding between a husband and wife. So when you see negative things happen, when you see someone tank their family because of their work life, you can talk about how, wow, he, that person had something good but was missing the giver behind that gift. Was missing the giver behind that gift. And that good thing degenerated into something destructive. So become aware and then talk about that Awareness. Talk about that 
uh, sighting. I pray that this is our summer assignment. When we walk out that door, when we start work or start vacation on Monday, may we see God in his world everywhere. Let's pray together.